appreciate how the choir and Joseph find songs that complement what we're talking about, talk back to. Who's responsible for diversity? Asks a HOPE member. And this is another great question from our congregation. I'm working my way through the list of heartfelt topics. When I asked this summer, what is the most burning moral issue of our day? As I prepared for today, next week's sermon kept elbowing its way into my thoughts. And next Sunday's sermon is, Do Bees Matter? As a pair, these two questions cinch together an unavoidable tension in life, diversity and singularity. A common observation is, I'm, I'm more comfortable around familiar people who are more like me than not. Differences can grate against my own values and morals. How do I navigate a vast, complex stew of humanity? Is anyone looking out for me? A pressing example of this tension is the heartbreaking immigration crises around the globe and in our own backyard. How do we respond to the throngs of desperate people who pick up their whole lives to flee danger and poverty and tyranny? Their exodus imposes cultural diversity upon host countries. In Europe, each country's hospitality has varied from open arms to strict limits. And here in the United States, our response to Central American immigrants is hypocritical and antithetical. We militantly police a border of barbed wire, fences, and impenetrable walls. And I just learned reading the Times this morning that we've been giving Mexico billions of dollars so that they can enforce their border with South America. So we're arming Mexico to do all that while there's a wink, wink, nod, nod to our essential need for foreign labor and new cultural ideas. Yet when we stop to listen to an individual migrant story, our response is entirely different from our response to the generalized situation found in headlines and statistics. Immigration seen from afar looks different than when noticing the diversity within it. But sticking to today's question, our curious congregant uses the word responsible. Who's responsible for diversity? The question could be as uh, asking about the source of creation. Is there a unified force? Some might use the word God or goddess bringing forth this grand diversity from a single big bang. Who or what is responsible for the ever-unfolding galaxies and evolving sentient life. I'm going to assume, since it came from this congregation, that if our questioner wanted us to consider a theist position, whether God exists, 
that's what they would have asked. Instead, they asked, who's responsible for diversity? And this morning, I take it to mean a question I often get about Hope Church. About Hope Church's seeming homogeneity. Why is the congregation pretty much all one color? Or all one class? And when I first came, all one age? (laughs) We give lip service to a great ideal here. We are welcoming to all. We accept everyone on their life journey, knowing that each one of us is at a different station and possibly headed in a different direction for the time being until death stops us all, our common destination. And when we view our church as fairly uniform, the question becomes, who's responsible for the lack of diversity? Many report they come to Hope Church to be with their own people. We are a tribe of seekers and free thinkers questing for a refuge from zealous religious extremists. We are a self-selecting group. And my response is, if you think we are all alike, you have not even begun to scratch underneath the surface. If you think we're all alike, you've missed opportunities to listen fully to each other, to hear what stories people tell, and even to notice what stories people are not telling. So today, let us bring forward the diversity already among us. Let's seek out our differences to better see and know each other. As a metaphor... Try to imagine your Sunday morning or your weekly routine through the bank, grocery store, workplace as if they were the taste of an exquisite meal. What I have in mind is an approach to our lives similar to the instructions the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh gives in his book, Savor. He gives simple steps for how to eat an apple how to really eat an apple. He calls it the apple meditation. The first thing is to give your undivided attention to eating the apple. When you eat the apple, just concentrate on eating. Don't think of anything else. And most important, be still. Don't eat the apple while you're driving. Don't eat it while you're walking. Don't eat it while you're reading. Just be still. Being focused and slowing down will allow you to truly savor all the qualities the apple offers. Its sweetness, aroma, freshness, juiciness, and crispness. So each interaction as we go about our day, I'm asking us to Have it be like the carefully observed bite of an apple. We'll discover much we've never noticed before about each other. I'm asking us to savor and seek out the uniqueness in each one of us.
approach each person in your daily path as if for the first time, as if discovering the unexpected tastes of something brand new and delicious and unbelievably complex. Take in the aha moment of the possibilities and diversity of each one of us. When I thought of the apple, I couldn't help but remember the savoring of food. Some of you might have read restaurant critic and food editor Ruth Reichel's first autobiography, Tender at the Bone. So Thich Nhat Hanh gives us instructions, and Ruth Reichel describes that moment when you are fully aware of the complexities of food or someone else. Her descriptions of discovering the joy of well-prepared, intricate flavors. reads like a sexual awakening sent off to a French-Canadian boarding school and lonely. She visits a classmate's wealthy home. The butler walks solemnly around the table, distributing bowls by age and rank. The soup was fragrant and steamed invitingly. I sat, tantalized, waiting for Madame Ducroix to lift her spoon. Finally, she did. I dipped my own spoon into the thick liquid and brought it to my mouth. With the first sip, I knew I had never really eaten before. The initial taste was pure carrot, followed by cream, butter, a bit of nutmeg. Then I swallowed, and my whole mouth and throat filled with the echo of a rich chicken stock. I took another bite, and it began all over again. I ate as if in a dream. So what I'm suggesting is that we treat our interactions with each other like that first moment of of love and excitement, that we are responsible for diversity and discovering it. We must see it and taste it and hear it and smell it and witness it. If we don't experience all the differences we already have here at Hope or in our lives, it is as if we're grabbing an apple and eating in the car and rush our traffic while loud rock and roll music is playing. It's like slurping up your soup while watching TV and checking your email. If we don't recognize our own diversity, we're unprepared to welcome other forms of diversity. We haven't cultivated the skills to navigate different ages or races or philosophies or disabilities or sexual orientations. Not seeing diversity can be tragic. Scholars, activists, and historians have been telling us for a year there are grave problems with simplistic, generalizing assimilation images, calling the U.S. a melting pot, or claiming you're colorblind, are intellectually dishonest descriptions of our realities. Sticking to race as our example, pretending we're oblivious 
to the color of someone's skin is impossible. It is one of the first things we notice. Ignoring diversity adds to racism, not diminishes it. Wishing to be colorblind erases historical and cultural differences and denies racist experiences. Problems arise when we ignore the obvious diversity. Problems arise when we ignore hidden or silent diversity. A scholar writing for Psychology Today, listen carefully to his explanation. Many Americans view colorblindness as helpful to people of color by asserting that race does not matter. But in America, most underrepresented minorities will explain that race does matter as it affects opportunities, perception, income, and so much more. When race-related problems arise, colorblindness tends to individualize conflicts and shortcomings rather than examining the larger picture, the larger system with cultural differences, stereotypes, and values placed into context. Instead of resulting from an enlightened, albeit well-meaning position, colorblindness comes from a lack of awareness of racial privilege conferred by whiteness. White people can guiltlessly subscribe to colorblindness because they are usually unaware of how race affects people of color and American society as a whole. The upcoming Columbus Day is another example of colorblindness. The celebration is a heroification of a brutal conqueror whose actions caused enslavement and death. Native Americans rightly remind us this colorblind telling of history completely ignores their experiences. Columbus brought biological diseases and looting diseases. Columbus Day represents our cultural amnesia. Race and color aren't the only categories we sloppily overgeneralize. All Jews, all Mexicans, all Muslims, all Christians, all Unitarians, all refugees, all 30-year-olds, all 80-year-olds are not the same. Aiming for uniform, uniformity is damaging. Diversity is inevitable, built into every system and all of life. At Hope, we sometimes practice theology blindness when assuming everyone shares our mindset or certainly must want to. When we act as if we're fully formed in our philosophies and ideas, we end up being condescending and abrasive. I'm reminded from teaching the recent Roots classes, <coughs> a class for anyone interested in wanting to know more about the church and its traditions, I'm reminded how tender and vulnerable newcomers can be. Entering our doors can be an astonishing step of bravery and courage. Those who've been here for a while 
may have forgotten how lonely and frightening it can be to investigate our non-traditional religious community. It is lonely because it can mean being shunned or cut off from family and friends and other support communities. They need us to listen to their stories, their experiences, and witness their individuality and where they are at this moment. As Unitarian and Universalists, we're called to nurture and tend our connections and relationships. We're called to treat each individual interaction as effectively cross-cultural. This means becoming more self-aware, means noticing assumptions. We're called to more fully see and savor who stands before us and who sits next to us. Discovering diversity, being responsible for it, is not as easy as that first glorious sip of carrot soup. In dealing with people, it takes risk and courage. We must be willing to make mistakes. We may ask the wrong question, say the wrong thing. And we must be forgiving of each other's efforts. So during our coffee hour this morning, or as you take a hike on our hill after church, specifically look for diversity and difference in each interaction. Presume the person has a view different from your own. Ask questions. Be alert to actions that you find puzzling. If something or somebody offends you or, you, or gets offended, that's a good cue to ask, why did they do that? This is a mental habit to develop, to gain deeper insight into another person, that cross-cultural. We are responsible for our diversity, for seeing it more clearly and not brushing it aside to get to the more comfortable feelings of unity and sameness. If we rush to similarities too quickly, we're ignoring a rich source of creation and understanding. We are responsible for our diversity. May it be so.